Well, I love beginnings. Uh, I love beginnings of basketball games and football games. Oftentimes people love the ends. I, I like the ends, okay? But in the ends, they're always calling time out. They're stopping the clock. And the last, you know, 15 seconds takes 35 minutes. And that's, that's not much of a game. I like it when they're fresh and when they can run and when they can shoot and when they can pass and they're strong. I like beginnings. I like the beginnings of vacation. Uh, one of the things that I almost always say on vacation, I, it's just something that I, I love so much, on the first day of vacation, Yvonne, what do I say? It's the best part of vacation. The very first day because everything is all ahead of us and we have everything to look forward to to prepare. I love the beginnings of projects. When you just start out, because everyone's excited about the new project that we just start out. Workers are willing, there's joy and anticipation abounding. I love the beginning of of projects. Well, today we've come to a beginning. We've come to the beginning of the Gospel according to Mark. And I love beginnings, especially opening books of the Bible. We start. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 1, verse 1. If you haven't taken your Bible and opened it there, I would encourage you to do that. Matthew, Mark. Mark is a second book of the New Testament. I invite you to open your, your books there. And, and what a privilege we have as a church to open up the book of Mark. My, my suspicion is it'll take us maybe about a year to get through Mark. So we go through verse by verse, just working through this book. And I just say, what a, what a privilege we have of week in, week out, just to dig into the life of Jesus. Week in, and week out, just thinking upon, reflecting upon the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. As Isaiah 40 says, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God stands forever. And so what we will look at here will be that part of the universe that will last forever. God's Word every week. Well, we're going to start here, right here. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. I'm going to read it for you. It says, The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that's all that we're going to get through today. I promise that in future weeks we will go faster than this, but my my message today is more of an overview. I I want to take this verse and kind of launch from it and try to put the whole package together that we might see the whole thing and we might not miss the forest for the trees. I want to talk to you first about the author. The top of your page in your Bible, you probably have these words that say, "...the Gospel according to Mark." My Bible, it's just, just right up here, the Gospel according to Mark. Know that that's not in the biblical text. Um, the only way we know that Mark wrote this is not from the book. Mark nowhere, like in none of the Gospel writers says, hey, this is Matthew and I'm writing this, or, or this is Luke and I'm writing this. None of them say that. Uh, the only way we know it made from clues within the book, but in Mark's place, the only, place, the only way we know about it is because of the testimony from church history. And Eusebius... One of the church fathers wrote in AD 140, Mark, who became Peter's interpreter, and that's important, wrote accurately, though not in in order, all that he remembered of the things said or done by the Lord. And this testimony has been universally received down through church history that it was Mark who wrote, but that Mark's source behind it was Peter. Because Mark wasn't at all of these meetings or all of these sayings of Jesus but Peter was, and Peter became the source then that Mark could write this, this narrative, this testimony, if you will, this gospel. 
Now we have hints of their relationship. In 1 Peter 5, verse 13, Peter identifies Mark as my son. It's not his physical son. Uh, we know that. But we know that it's probably a spiritual son. Perhaps Peter was the one to lead Mark to the Lord. Maybe Peter was the one who was key and instrumental in discipling Mark. At any rate, he's called my son. And we know from the book of Acts that they knew each other. Acts chapter 12 tells a great story. The early church was facing persecution. James had been executed by a sword. His head was cut off by Herod. Got some approval from the Romans who, who saw these, these Christians rising up and put Peter in jail. And Peter was probably going to meet the same fate on the next day. And so the church... Um, was really praying in Mary's house, praying fervently unto Him. And God heard their prayers in the middle of the night, sent an angel to Peter, loosed his bonds, led him past the first and second guard, and eventually into Mary's home. We read in Acts chapter 12, verse 12, He went to the house of Mary, that is Peter. Mary is the mother of John, who is also called Mark. And this is the same Mark who wrote what we have before us here this morning. He witnessed the mighty works of the Lord in this prayer meeting, freeing Peter from prison. And we see the link of Mark and and Peter right here in the book of Acts. But not only was it Mark and Peter, also Mark had a link to the Apostle Paul as well. He was well known among the apostles, that's for sure. The story of Mark and Paul begins in Acts chapter 13. The church was ministering to the Lord saying, what should we do? They were in Antioch and the Lord told them to set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work that I've called them to do. And so they went off on a missionary journey to bring the message of the Gospel beyond Jerusalem, beyond um, Judea and Samaria, beyond Antioch, even right to the world. They went to Asia Minor is really where they went. And uh, they went along and Mark came along as their helper. Acts 13, verse 5. And early in the journey, when they were in Pamphylia, Mark deserted them. We don't know why he deserted him. We don't know the circumstances behind that. But somehow, Mark was with Paul and Barnabas and maybe it got too hard, maybe it got too difficult for him, maybe he got homesick, maybe he wanted his mommy. I'm not exactly sure, but he, he left. And that was a failure on Mark's part, big time. He failed in his endeavor to be a missionary of these men. In fact, such a blight on Mark's character was that when it came time, Acts chapter 15 tells this story, for them to take a second missionary journey, Paul refused to take Mark along. Paul, Barnabas, his cousin, actually, wanted him to take wanted him, Mark to come along, and Paul said, Paul said no. By the way, we have some more notes in the back if you, if you need any. Why don't you just go back to Chuck? You got him. Whoever needs some notes can just slide back there. There you go. Um, Barnabas said, yes, let's take Mark. Paul said, no. And there was an argument back and forth. And Paul, it says, kept insisting that they would not take him along. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas that, that they actually split up. And, and, and Paul and Barnabas and Mark sailed away and then Paul chose Silas, and then Paul and Silas. So even you see a, just a, a rift in the early church that was all over Mark and what he had done. It's no small deal. I'm sure he felt disappointment. I'm sure he felt failure. I'm sure that he felt he, he let others down. As, even as he saw the Apostle Paul arguing with Barnabas over this matter. And yet, by God's grace, we know years later, Paul was in a Roman prison as we studied this a few months back. Paul told Timothy, when you come to see me, pick up Mark 
and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. What a great story of reconciliation. And here was Paul at Mark, at one time disappointed Paul, but just through steady faithfulness and commitment to the Lord, regained his trust. And I'm not sure how they were reconciled, and I'm not sure how that road to recovery is, but he proved himself faithful in the end. And, you know, this is what matters in the Christian life. It's, it's really not how you start, it's how you end. See, there are many who sprout up and look flashy at first, and then they fade away. But there are others who stumble in their walk, but continue in their faithfulness. They continue to the end. And Proverbs 24, verse 16 says, "...the righteous man falls seven times and rises again." And that's what we see with Mark. Mark fell, and yet he rose again to follow and trust the Lord. And God hates those who fall away, who fade away, but God loves those who seek the Lord, especially after time of failure. As we go through the Gospel of Mark, one of the themes we're going to see here is, is the failure of disciples. I mean, it, it's, it's plastered all over this thing. The disciples don't see Jesus. They don't understand Jesus. They just don't quite get it. And Jesus is patient with them. He pours Himself out for them. And they fail to believe. They, they don't understand His words. They're in it for themselves. And in fact, even in the greatest time of Jesus' need, they deserted Him. And yet, what is so wonderful is the good news that they were later restored. And we know from church history, they turned the world upside down. It's a lesson for all of us. In some ways, we are like the disciples. We are like Mark. There have been times when we've lacked faith. At least I speak for myself. When we fail to understand what Jesus wants of it. When we are in it for ourselves and not for Jesus' glory. We failed to be faithful in some of our life tests. And if this is you, well then join the club. That's what we're about. We're sinners saved by grace. We're not perfect, righteous people. We, we fail the Lord, and, and yet, when we fall, we get up and we say, God, forgive me, help me, cleanse me, I'm sorry. And as we continue to walk faithfully, that, that's what God wants. As one man said, Confusion in your mind does not disqualify you from being a disciple. It means that you're merely walking a well-worn path. And what good news is that for us today? Mark knew what it was like. Peter knew what it was like. Right? I mean, he, he denied the Lord three times. And yet God is gracious. There's an opportunity for repentance. And the Gospel of Mark will show us this. It's a, it's a Gospel of great hope for all of us. Well, let's just take the next words from, my, from chapter 1, verse 1. There was Mark. Now let's look at the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. My point too is this Gospel. Let's, let's think about Gospel and what it means. On the one hand, we call this the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of John. It, it encompasses all of the life of Jesus. It's really the, the good news is what the Gospel is. The Greek is euangelion. You, from like eulogy, good, angelion, message. It's a good message. What this word is? In a world full of bad news, Mark's Gospel is going to show us the good news of Jesus. In the ancient world, this word had a special significance, especially as it related to the king. When a, when a, a future king was born, there was a euangelion. There was an announcement. There was a proclamation. The king has been born. Or when the, a new king gets on the throne, there's been a euangelion. There's an announcement. The king is on the throne. The king reigns. Long live the king. And I guarantee you, there is a, a woman who lives in England. Her name is Kate, Duchess of Cambridge. 
when she has her first child, my bet is that all the adults for sure will know it and the kids who are in tune enough will know it because the king has a child who will be the heir, a future heir, and there will be a UN galley and a good news. Maybe England will declare a holiday. I'm not exactly sure. Maybe our world today is different than it was in years gone by. But there will be good news and we will know it. And this will spread abroad. That's what this euangelion is. Also, in ancient Roman times, this word gospel was used as a technical term for the news of victory. The Romans are out on the war path and they're, they're fighting and then a messenger comes back and he comes back with a euangelion. He comes back and saying, Hail! We have won! And that is the Gospel. That is a, the good news coming from the war front. It's a time of celebration. And oftentimes in the Roman culture, praises and sacrifices were offered. And these were even called Gospels. These are our offerings to our gods because we have won. Because it's been a, a good news that we have. When, when Nero had success, been successful in the games, you know, like the Olympics. He ordered the, the Gospels to be offered to their gods because the Romans believed that good news is a gift to the gods. That's why it's celebrated with sacrificial feasts. Just, that's what this is, what's what behind this word Gospel is, behind this word good news. And we see here Mark picking up on all of that, the, the beginning of the Gospel, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ. And, and catch this, Jesus is our King who was born. And Jesus is our King who will reign. And the good news is that He brought the victory. All that is encompassed here in the word gospel. And this is good news. It's good news to the time of the people who lived, at the time of Christ. It's good news to us today. And the good news is interesting here. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news of Jesus encompasses all of His life. It encompasses who He is. He's a King. It encompasses what He did. He brought the victory. And all the implications from that. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, Now I made known to you, brethren, the gospel, which I preached to you, which you also received, and which you also stand, by which you are also saved, if you hold fast the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And you see Paul here talking about the Gospel that he delivered to you. It's all about Jesus who died according to the Scriptures, was buried and was raised according to the Scriptures. And that through belief in that Gospel, you are saved. And so you see the Gospel is all about the life of Jesus. It's about His life and it's about His death. And when Christ was raised, He fulfilled the Scriptures. When He died for our sins, He fulfilled the Scriptures. And we know the good news is true what I'm proclaiming today. It's the good news of Jesus. Well, a key verse in Mark tells of this good news, tells of this Gospel in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. So how about you flip over there. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. It's a key verse. We'll probably come back to it many times in the future. Our exposition of the Gospel of Mark. He says this, Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Probably heard this verse before. Maybe, maybe memorized this verse. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Though Jesus is God's Son, though Jesus is God incarnate, He didn't come to earth to receive earthly accolades. He didn't come to earth to be praised by men. 
He didn't come to reign as king upon the earth at that time. No, He came to serve. And how did He serve? He served by healing and by teaching and by giving Himself completely to those around Him. In fact, it says in in Mark chapter 6, verse 31, that at one point, He was so busy giving of Himself and His disciples that there were so many people coming and going that they did not even have time to eat. That's the servant who just serves so much he doesn't even have time for himself because he gives towards others And that's who Jesus was. That's His life. But Jesus not only came as a servant, as it says, the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve. But He also came to give His life a ransom for many. Jesus also came to die. That's what this phrase is talking about. Giving His life as a ransom for many. Notice the idea there of substitution. He gave His life for many. It was His life for the many. It's really the crux of the Gospel. That, that Jesus Christ died in our place. Jesus bore our sins in His body on the cross that we receive His righteousness by imputation and we go free. We were held captive in our sins, but Jesus came and paid the captive price. He paid the ransom for our sins. As we believe and trust in Him, we go free. Now, what good news is that? I mean, we, we are free through Jesus, through faith and trust in Him. We just need to believe in Him. He wipes our sins away. Notice here, however, verse 45. He didn't do this for everyone. He did this for the many. He did it for those who believe. And maybe you're here today and you don't believe. Well, Jesus didn't pay your ransom. You need to believe and trust and He'll pay that ransom. And I just say, church family, how important it is us for, for us to believe in this Gospel. I mean, to believe that we might have life rather than having death. And, and the book of Mark is all about the Gospel. Even in verse 1 we see it. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. We think about the big idea of the book of Mark. I'm pulling it right from this idea. We don't have a teaching slide yet. Uh, my kids are still working on that, but we'll get one up. But it's going to say something like this. The servant who saves. I think that's what the book is about. The servant who Jesus is, who saves what Jesus does. He's a servant who's given Himself for us. And He gave His life. It's a ransom for many. He saves us. And we'll see that in weeks to come. Well, we've seen the author. We've seen the Gospel. Let's... Let's reflect upon the next phrase there, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let's focus on Jesus Christ. Obviously, He is the author. He is the the subject of this book. It's all about Jesus. Mark will tell us about the ways He lived. Healing those who were ill. Casting out demons. Forgiving sins. Teaching of the Kingdom of God. Raising people from the dead. Feeding thousands of people. Correcting the Pharisees in their erroneous way. Revealing Himself as the office of Christ. Revealing His true nature in the Mount of Transfiguration. Explaining His purpose in coming. Not to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. We'll see the way He died. It's a major focus of the book of Mark. Entering into Jerusalem, being rejected by the chief priests and the rulers. Telling His disciples of His return on the Mount of Olives. And then delivered up to the chief priests, scribes, and Pharisees, condemned to death, crucified, dead, and buried, and then rising from the dead. And this just works through. Mark 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 just works us right through his, his death. It's really what the Gospel of Mark is about. It's a biography. 
It's a biography about the life of Jesus. But it, it, it is a strange biography of sorts. It tells nothing of his birth. tells nothing of his origin. Approximately half of the book, chapters 1 through 10, focus on the first, on three years of his life. And, and then 11 through 16 focus on just a week of his life. And, and particularly even 14, 15, 16, just 24 hours. Just, it it kind of teaches you to crescendo about the most important thing in the life of Christ is His death for us and for our sins. Most biographers don't write books like this. I mean, I mean normally when you have a biography, like, like for instance, I just started reading a biography recently. Uh, A.W. Tozer, a, a Passion for God, Spiritual Journey of A.W. Tozer. It starts off right in chapter 1 with his grandparents. Oftentimes what other biographies I've read, they start with grandparents and growing up and how it is. Jesus, Mark does none of that. He focuses mostly upon coming into the, the ministry and then his ministry and then his death, which actually, by the way, most of the, the Gospel accounts do that. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all do that, though they do it from a, a slightly different angle which all, all help us. And, and that's a, that is a common thing. I mean, I think about uh, this, this biography here of, of A.W. Tozer. He, he writes this on page 20 about why the man, while Lyle Dorset, felt like I should write this biography. He says, although there are already two important biographies of A.W. Tozer, one written by David Fant and one written by James Snyder, I've chosen to write another book for several reasons. First, some new resources are available since Fant and Snyder wrote their books. Second, despite significant contributions of the early biographies in setting forth the details of Tozer's life, more remains to be revealed about the inner man. The dimension of A.W. Tozer have eluded students in his life and ministry. As a result, this book attempts to reveal the inner life of this gifted and complex man. Third, inasmuch as Tozer had been dead for nearly half a century, we now have a vantage point of a longer perspective that the first biographers didn't have. Fourth, early 21st century Christians live in a culture that's, uh, that asks some different questions and wrestle with at least a few issues peculiar to our time and therefore not explored in the earlier biographies. And so, he's just justifying why you need another biography on A.W. Tozer because our situation's a little bit different because we've got a more vantage point. Well, well that's what happens with the, the Gospel writers. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all have their, their different angles and their different take upon the life of Jesus. You read Matthew and you will be impressed with the number of times that Matthew speaks about how this was done in order that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. In order that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. This was so that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. You see a, a big, strong emphasis there about the fulfillment of Scriptures, presumably written to a Jewish audience, which I think Matthew was. Luke says right at the beginning in the Gospel of Luke, this is a, a detailed account. I have, I have carefully studied and researched so Theophilus to whom it was written. You might know exactly the exact details about Jesus. Luke was more of a historian writing, um, trying to put down everything exactly right. He's a doctor want, uh, looking at the details and so... He wanted to give the exact truth about Jesus. The Gospel of John is decidedly evangelistic. It says right at the end, chapter 20, verse 31, I write these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. John is, is different than the other three Gospels. leaves out a lot of different things. But, but the things he writes were specific so that people might believe that Jesus is the Son of God, He's the Christ, 
and that then by believing they'd have life in his name. So you say, why was Mark written? What was his angle? Well, I think Mark was primarily writing to a Gentile audience. Just as Matthew was written to the Jews, I think Mark was written to the Gentiles. And I say that because there are several times in the Gospel of Mark where Mark takes time to explain the Jewish customs that would be easily understood by Jewish readers. Also, he translates words which would be unnecessary for a Jewish audience. So, like this. Chapter 7 says, at the beginning, the Pharisees, in fact, you can turn over there if you want, chapter 7, the Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him when they had come from Jerusalem, and when they had seen some of his disciples were eating bread with impure hands that is unwashed. And here's Mark, I think, having a burden for Gentile people who don't understand washing. It's like, oh, they're eating dirty hands, they're going to get sick. No, that's not it at all. It's ceremonial. For the Pharisees and the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplaces, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. And then he goes on to tell a story in verse 5. And then the Pharisees came and said, why don't you wash according to the tradition of the elders? And, and, and Mark does this on several other occasions, just explaining what, what different customs are and different things are and translating words sometimes, which a Jewish reader would know. So I, I think Mark has, a, has a, a slant to write something clear, something short, something precise for a, a non-Hebrew reader. In fact, the Gospel of Mark is short. It's the shortest by far. Matthew is 30 pages in my Bible. Luke 31, John 23, but when you get to Mark, it's only 18. It's much shorter than all the other Gospels. To say it out loud, to read the whole thing out loud, takes about 90 minutes. And uh, I did pass out in the Weekly Word, there's some links to Max McLean who performed this um, because he's memorized the book of Mark on the Internet. I I would encourage you to take some time to to look at that and watch that. Yvonne and I and Darren uh, went to Chicago to see him perform that. It's very powerful. The thing, if you, if you watch that with Max McLean, you'd be amazed how funny and how humorous certain things are in the Gospel of Mark. And that will, that will come across as you watch those videos if you want to. But I, I think that Mark is a, is a short statement just about the, the life of Christ. There's a lot of things left out. No genealogies like Matthew and Luke have. No record of his birth or origin as the other Gospels have. He just begins. He just comes on the scene. In fact, look, look back there in, in chapter 1. When, when Jesus just kind of comes on the scene. Verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth and Galilee. He was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming out of the water. He just, he just comes and He goes. In verse 12. Immediately, the Spirit impelled Him to go into the wilderness. And He was there for 40 days. In fact, even you might, might catch some things here. There's an urgency to Mark's Gospel. It kind of moves along pretty quickly. This word immediately appears in Mark's Gospel some 43 times. And, and that's right about as many as times this occurs in Matthew and Luke and John. This word immediately, kind of quickly. Because Mark's Gospel just moves along. I mean, look at, look at all the places it's used. Verse 18. When he said, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. They called James, um, his brother John, verse 20. Immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee there in the boat. 21. And when they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue. Verse 28. 
Immediately the news about him spread everywhere into the surrounding district. Verse 9, And immediately after they came out of the synagogue, they came to the house of Simon. Verse 30, Now Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever, and immediately they spoke with her about her. Verse 42, says the same thing. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Verse 43, He sternly warned him and immediately sent him away. You know what this reminds me of? Like, you know how like the um, teenagers like talk about today, right? They, they talk about something and like, you know, it was like this. Uh, I kind of think that Mark was doing that. Right? I know that, that Mr. Reed over here likes to ask his children. No, it's not like that. It is that. It's not like that. And so likewise, I think that Mark was just, he got this word immediately and he's just going. But I think, I think it puts an urgency on there. I, I think it shows Jesus being one who, who immediately will obey and immediately will go. I mean, and that is a sign of a servant, right? The servant is one who hears his master's command and quickly goes and does it. It's how children ought to obey their parents. First time, every time, quickly. It's the aim. Jesus was the ultimate servant who obeyed immediately. Well, I do think that one of the reasons why Mark wrote with such brevity and clarity was because of his evangelistic heart. I think Mark has also got an evangelistic slant on here. And, and you pick that up from chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. One of the burdens of the Gospel of Mark is to show that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. Several times through the, the, the Gospel of Mark, you're going to see the just reference here to the Son of God, or Jesus is, is God's Son. Look, look down at verse 10. Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan, in verse 10, immediately coming up out of the water, He saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon Him, and a voice came out of the heavens, You are My beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now, Son of God here is not to be thought of as a title that God places on Jesus. It should be thought more of um, the declaration of the being of Jesus. That Jesus by nature is God's Son. He hasn't become God's Son. He has always been God's Son. Nothing changed here at the baptism. It was an affirmation though that God was well pleased with Jesus, His Son. And just even right there from the start, we see the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The Father tells everyone that He is the Son, that He's found delight in the Son, that He's an obedient and righteous Son. And even in Mark chapter 9, we read the account of the transfiguration when Jesus brought Peter, James, and John up to the mountain and His garments became exceedingly white, whiter than any um, launder has ever whitened garments before. And what you see is the being of Jesus glowing through those garments. And Moses and Elijah are there talking with Jesus. And, and then this voice comes from heaven. This is My beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Jesus is God's Son. We are to listen to Jesus. That is the call of this Gospel, to listen to Jesus, God's Son. And I think one thing that's really impressed upon me is just how, how we need to know Jesus. We need to know what He says in order to obey Him and listen to Him. I put out again in the Weekly Word a, a little blurb on this book that Yvonne and I read together, How to Master the English Bible. Um, if you didn't get it, it's probably back there on the back table. Go on the internet, enjoyinghisgrace.wordpress.com. But... Um, this, this book was a great book to read. James Martin Gray, 
just talks about how the way to master the Bible is basically take one book of the Bible and read it again and again and again and again and again and again. And things, you know, you might be bored the fourth or fifth time through, but then by the time you're about the tenth or twelfth or fifteenth time through, you start seeing things just coming up. And you start understanding, you start getting a grasp. Okay, I know what's in chapter one of Mark. And Jesus comes, He's baptized and... And um, then he goes in the synagogue and preaches. And you know what happens in, in chapter 2. He heals the man coming down. He, he picks grain on the Sabbath. He's got some conflicts in chapter 3, how there is some more conflicts and, and how the disciples are, are called and named. And then in chapter 4, how he preaches about the kingdom of God. And how in chapter 5, he raises someone from the dead. In chapter 6, he's feeding the 5,000. Seven, he's got some more conflicts with the scribes and Pharisees. And you begin to just think over and over all the way through the, the gospel because it's kind of in your mind and that's a good way to listen to him. And I just know I, as we go through the gospel of Mark, I'm committing myself to read the gospel every week. Just all the way through every week. And in fact, I'm looking for people who want to join the Mark Club and just say how to master the English Bible. Well, let's master Mark this year. And so if you want to join the Mark Club, join with me and just say I'm going to read the gospel of Mark every week. In preparation, you'll, you'll be amazed at how much you begin to understand about Jesus and you'll be able to listen to Him and obey Him and serve Him. Well, not only is it the Father who testifies to who Jesus is, the Son of God, it's also demons. Look down at verse 24. Jesus in the synagogue, teaching them. And, and this man was right, right there with an unclean spirit and he cried out, verse 24, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. It doesn't exactly use the phrase God's Son, but it does identify Jesus as a special one from God. And then Jesus rebuked him and said, Be quiet, come out of him. There's an identification. The demons knew who Jesus was. He's not some man or some angel. He's the Holy Son of God. And in chapter 3, we see the same thing with this phrase, Son of God, used. Look over chapter 3. And verse 11 is where we see this. So Jesus was out by the sea. He healed many. And it says in verse 11, when the unclean spirits saw Him, and this is continually lots of unclean spirits, they would fall down before Him and shout, You are the Son of God. And he earnestly warned them not to tell who he was. We'll talk about that later. He didn't want his, his fame spreading too much because then he couldn't go and preach. It's kind of what he was called for. The demons knew full well who he was. And what the demons knew, the Pharisees and Sadducees, chief priests and scribes, the religious elite, all failed to see. Instead, they wanted to kill him. Look at chapter 3, verse 6. After having these conflicts with Jesus, talking about the Sabbath, talking about the healing and the forgiving of sins. It comes down to verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against Him as to how they might destroy Him. They didn't understand that He was the Son of God. Instead, they saw what He did and wanted to, to destroy Him. And throughout the rest of the book, that really sets up the, 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 the plot line of Jesus Walk in here and these Pharisees trying to get him and trying to kill him. And finally, that's accomplished in chapter 15. It's interesting, even while he's on the cross, he's mocked by the chief priest. Turn over to chapter 15 and look at verse 31. Jesus is on the cross. 
Verse 29, those who are passing by were hurling abuse at Him, wagging their heads, saying, Ha! You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. And here is 15, verse 31. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking Him, saying, He saved others, but He cannot save Himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so we may see and believe. And the thieves that were crucified with them were insulting Him as well. They didn't see it. That's why they crucified Him upon the cross. But ironically, one of the soldiers saw it. This is in some ways a climax of the book. Verse 37, He uttered a loud cry, breathed His last, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top until bottom. And verse 39, When the centurion who was standing right in front of Him saw the way He breathed His last, He said, Truly this man was the Son of God. The, the Hebrew elite missed it. The Roman soldier, rank and file sergeant, saw him. The commander, the centurion, saw it and said, this was truly the Son of God. He believed in the Son of God. This is how the, one, one of the big points of the book. It's how the book starts. right? The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and how it ends. Truly, this man was the Son of God. Of God. I just say this do you believe it? Do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? It will make a change in your life. Many think he's a fake, Jesus. Um, in fact, one of the kids at Kids Club, not any of them here, um, think about this. A, uh, an eight year old told me, Jesus is dead. I said, No, he's not. He's alive. Say, oh, Jesus isn't real. I said, no, he's very real. These kids need Christ. That's why I love them. That's why I'm serving them. That's why I'm helping them. It's because they need to learn that. Many people think Jesus is a fake. He's dead. But a lot of people say, oh, he was a good teacher. Muslims believe he's a prophet. Mormons believe that Satan and Jesus were brothers. <clears throat> but Mark's point here is that Jesus was the Son of God. The the essence of God. God of very gods. He was the Son of God. Which really, as we think about what people think about Jesus, this leads us really to the, to the middle point, the fulcrum of the book. And by which by, I'm going to my fifth point now. Let's, let's go to the, the point called structure. I want to show you how the book is structured. One thing that I love about Mark is it's a clear structure to it and it all hinges on Mark chapter 8. You might think of it as a teeter-totter. Mark chapters 1 through 8 are on one side and Mark chapters 9 through 16 are on the other and there's this fulcrum point right in the middle upon which everything tips and turns. In Mark chapter 8, verse 27, Jesus and His disciples were up on a religious retreat up in Caesarea Philippi, even north of Galilee. And Jesus went out along with His disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi and on the way He questioned His disciples saying, Who do people say that I am? That's really my question. you believe He's the Son of God? Who do you think Jesus is? Lots of people have lots of different opinions. It's a good question. It's really the core of the issue of Mark. He wants to show his readers who Jesus is. He wants his disciples to know who Jesus is. And this good question gets some good answers. Verse 28, they said, well, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. But others, one of the prophets. It's the type of answers you receive today. What people think and, and believe. But then there comes a, a great question. Verse 29. 
He continued questioning, saying, but who do you say that I am? Because really when it comes down to it, it's not merely what people say about the Christ that matters so much. It's really what you say about Christ that matters a lot. You, know, you can do a lot of things in life. You can get a lot of things wrong in life. You can make bad choices as a teenager and lead you to bad things, corrupting influence in your life. You can make a bad marriage choice. leads you to heartache for many years. You can make bad business decisions. lead you into bankruptcy. But, but all these things, some of them will have lifelong implications. You can, you can get out of all of them. Okay? You can be rescued from that. You can recover. They're temporary. But there are some things you cannot recover from. And that is being wrong about the person of Jesus Christ. If you're wrong about Christ, it has eternal implications. And so I would encourage you to pay attention closely here when he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter said to him, you are the Christ. In fact, in Matthew's Gospel it says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter got it exactly right. Jesus Christ was the Anointed One. He was the Savior. He is the Messiah. He's the one who's going to save His people from their sins. And we know from Matthew's Gospel, again, that, that that wasn't Peter's idea that was revealed to him by God because they wouldn't see it unless God revealed it to him. And from that point on, ever since he said, you are the Christ, things change. I think up until this point, 1 through 8, Jesus is really focusing upon who He is. Mark is asking the, answering the question of who He is. But from this point on, like chapters 9 and following, He's going to say, what must Jesus do? Who Jesus is, what must Jesus do? He is a servant. He is the Christ who saves. Or He is the Son of God who saves. Also, another familiar word we don't have time for today is the Son of Man. He's the Son of Man who saves. Who is He? He's the Christ. And everything here on out is going to talk to, him, talk to them about what's He going to do. Now, He warned them in verse 30, tell no one about this, who He is, because that would ruin everything if people would know about it too soon. But now he's going to focus on what he has to do. Look at verse 31. And he began to teach them. This is the beginning. Once they figured out who he was, now they're going to teach him what he must do. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. What must Jesus do? He must suffer and die and be raised from the dead. This is a theme from this point on in the Gospel of Mark. Turn over to chapter 9, verse 30. So they go on from there. They went out and began to go through Galilee. He didn't have anyone to know about it. For He was teaching His disciples and telling them, the Son of Man, there's that other term which is used often, is to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill Him and when He's been killed, He will rise three days later. Same thing. It took eight chapters for the disciples to realize who He was. And now it's going to take another eight chapters for them to fully understand what He must do. But they didn't. Verse 32. They did not understand this statement. And were afraid to ask Him. So He's going to go over it again and again and again. Okay, guys. Okay. Get your attention. You know, sometimes my, my son David, and our kids know this, is if he's... I wrote a blog entry about this too. How relentless you can read that. But he, David is talking about something. If he wants something, if he wants a cookie, if he wants our attention, he'll just say it and say it and say it and say it. And sometimes what will he do? 
He'll take her on and, and he'll, he'll, he'll bring her mouth and so our face, so we're looking right at him. So we've got to listen to him. He does that often. And this is what Jesus is doing. He's telling him again and again, the Son of Man must go up to Jerusalem. He must suffer and die and rise again. And they're like talking about something else. He's taking their face and going like this and saying, you've got to understand this. So we're saying it's a repeated theme. It's coming again. It came in chapter 8. It comes in chapter 9. It comes in chapter 10. Look at verse 33. Then they... Um, yeah, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, verse 32. Walking on the road ahead of them, Jesus was, and they were amazed. And those who followed were fearful. And again, He took the twelve aside. Right? He turned their face, looked at them, began to tell them what was going to happen to them. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn Him to death, and will hand Him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock Him, and they will spit on Him, and they will scourge Him, and they will kill Him, and three days later He will rise again. Same thing. Again, again. The suffering, death, and resurrection. That's the story of Jesus. It's how Mark's Gospel ends. Chapters 11 through 16. He's in Jerusalem in chapter 11. In chapter 14, he is betrayed, delivered up, mocked, and that continues over in chapter 15, mocked and scourged and crucified. And then in chapter 16, we see his resurrection. It's a story we must believe. It's a story that needs to be front and center in our lives. And Jesus knew how front and center this ought to be in our lives. That's why I believe he instituted the Lord's Supper. Here's my last point the Supper. We've seen the author, if you missed your blanks, the author of the Gospel, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the structure, and now the supper. In Rock Valley Bible Church, every four to six weeks or so, just depending upon where the texts come, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's doing what Jesus told us to do. He told, he told us to do this in remembrance of me. I believe He told us to do that because we need to keep front and center our minds riveted upon the cross of Christ. They need to be riveted there as we celebrate the supper again. This focuses our heart and attention for us. Now, if you're visiting with us today, if you're a believer in Christ, you're welcome to take the supper with us. Uh, but if you're not, if you're not a believer in Christ, just let the supper pass over. Uh, it's not for you. This is for those who said, yes, I believe in Jesus. I am all in with Christ. So this supper is for is a time which we remember Jesus, His death upon the cross. Mark accounts for that time in chapter 14, verse 22. It's a very short section here. Lots of stuff is left out, but that's consistent with Mark. It says, while they were eating, He took some bread. So this was right in the midst of the meal. took some bread. After blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to them. It says, take it, this is my body. Now, obviously, that wasn't his actual literal body, as the Roman Catholics believe. It was a symbolic representation of everything that would happen, about everything he's been saying. Hey, this is my body that's going to be crushed upon the cross. He says, you take it and eat it. And then, when they had taken a cup, and they were taking lots of cups, and they would given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. It's the communal cup that they did. We're not going to do that today. We have little communion cups, which are fine. And he said, This is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. And again, he's, he's taking his attention back to the covenant, the Old Testament, the, the time of the, the new covenant coming in. So this, this blood, this, this fruit of the vine here is what he calls it. I will not drink again of the 
fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This looks like blood. And this is the cup of the covenant. And you just remember, when I'm on the cross, my blood is dripping down. I'm inaugurating the new covenant. That's what this means. We're remembering Jesus Christ in this action. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, we ought to examine ourselves before we do so. And so I'd like you just to bow your heads and examine your hearts. You might take this in a, in a worthy way. Maybe there are issues in your life. If you're not a Christian, maybe today's a day where you call out upon the Lord. You say, God, I, I haven't believed that You are the Son of God and now I do. I see Your plan of how You are the Son of man who didn't come to be served but to serve and to give Your life a ransom for many. I'm, I'm grateful, thankful, O Lord, that You gave Your life a ransom and I, I know I need that in my life. And so if that's You, repent today. Or perhaps your heart is hardened against the Lord for some reason. Don't eat then. Or better yet, confess right now and just say, God, my heart has been hard. I need Your grace. I need Your grace. And I believe and trust that in the blood of Jesus I'm I'm forgiven. Because it's not just some sins that God forgives. He forgives all our transgressions. So believe and trust that today. And for all of us, we ought to reflect upon Jesus. He died and rose again. As we sang even earlier, amazing love, how can it be that you, my King, would die for me? That's what this is about, reflecting upon that time. And so, O Lord, we do beseech You now to come and and cause us to remember vividly the, the life and death of Christ. So we often hear the Word. Now we have a chance to taste. So we think, God, even with our tongues, as we think about crushed bodies and blood poured out, may it stir us in an ever-increasing devotion and honor and glory to You. So may it be a time of celebration as we Survey and think about the wondrous cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His name we pray. Amen.